If you would, please take out your Bibles now and turn in them to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. And if you don't have a Bible, you might grab one under the seat in front of you. In the back section, you can turn to page 160, and you would find yourself right at 1 Thessalonians and the fourth chapter. There is a seasoned preacher who speaks boldly in our day. He's not particularly popular, though he is well-known. The world is his parish, and he travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor, calls upon the rich, preaches to people of every religion and no religion, and the subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher could, and bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. His name, Death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday, every one of you will be his sermon. It's so true. And you know, death is an interesting thing. It is a haunting specter for each one of us individually. And it has a special impact in our lives when someone that we loved and cared for dies. I was reading this week about a little tradition that some South Pacific Islanders have. And in this South Pacific Island, they have a couple of special times a year when their tradition is that they climb to the highest tree or climb to the highest point on a cliff and they shout out the names of dead loved ones calling out, come back, come back. You know, when a loved one dies, it leaves a void that we have a longing to be filled. And for some of us, in a, in a group of this size, for some of us, that void is relatively fresh. If you are experiencing a wedding anniversary alone now, that void may be relatively fresh. If you have a child who is in heaven, gone there before you, you understand that void. And if you've lost a friend with whom you had deep bonds, you understand that void. And if you haven't yet experienced that, you will experience that. So whether we have experienced it in the past or whether we are currently experiencing it in the present or whether we will experience it in the near future, God has for us today some words of comfort and some words of encouragement that are great words to look at. 
We are involved in a study of 1 Thessalonians, which we have subtitled, Keeping Spiritually Straight in a Crooked World. And we have come in that study to chapter 4, verses 13 and following, which is called the prophetic section of the book. And we spent several weeks gaining some perspective on prophecy, getting a broader view of prophecy, almost allowing prophecy to freshen our anticipation of prophetic events. And today we are coming to a precise section in chapter 13 down through verse 18. And the issue that Paul is addressing here is the issue of loved ones who have died. The question was arising, what about loved ones who have died? And the good news that he has to share with the Thessalonians and with us is a great event is coming. A great event is coming. If you have your Bible open to 1 Thessalonians 4, I would like to read verses 13 to 18 and invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read these words. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now virtually all students of the Bible agree on one thing, and that is there is a great event coming. And that great event has been labeled the rapture. By the way, that term is derived from verse 17 of chapter 4, from the little phrase caught up together, that verbal phrase. In the Latin versions of the Bible, the word there is the word rapturo. And it's from that word of being caught up together that we get the word, the rapture. And when you talk about the rapture, there are really two elements. You have to talk about the what of the rapture, and you have to talk a little bit about the when of the rapture. The what of the rapture is a consensus thing. It makes no difference what your theological background may be. That's a consensus thing. The when of the rapture, uh, there are differing perspectives on that. Today what we want to do is we want to look at the what of the rapture. The consensus element, there is a great event coming. And there's a threefold thrust we're going to look at this morning. And I want you to see these three points. First of all, Paul says, be informed and be hopeful. That's in verses 13 to 14. Secondly, he gives us details of the rapture in verses 15 to 17. And then his thrust is, look at the bottom line in verse 18. 
So that is really our plan for today. We're going to look at the fact that we should be informed and be hopeful. In the first two verses, we should look at the details of the rapture in verses 15, 16, and 17. And then we will look at the bottom line of all of this that he has for us in verse 18. So that's where we're going. Let's begin by being informed and being hopeful. Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed. By the way, that is a very frequent phrase that Paul uses in the New Testament. And when he uses that phrase related to issues of truth, he's basically saying, I want to fill in some gaps in your understanding. I don't want you to be in the dark at all. And it's interesting to see how many times that phrase comes up in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, he basically says, I don't want you to be uninformed about spiritual errors that people in the Old Testament made as they lived their life. And he begins to fill in the gaps of missing understanding that they had. In Romans chapter 11 verse 25, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about the fact that there is a future for Israel. And he begins to fill in the gaps for them there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about the role of spiritual gifts. And he begins to fill in the gaps of the understanding that they had about that. And so that's exactly what he's doing here when he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I want to fill in some gaps of your understanding. Well, gaps in understanding about what in particular? About those who are asleep. And down in verse 14, he talks about those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, that little phrase, sleep, those who have fallen asleep, is a common New Testament description of believers who have died. In fact, sleep, by one count, is used 18 times in the New Testament. 15 times it refers to death. Now, when he talks about those who are asleep, he, he is not talking about this important point that we need to clarify. He is not talking about what is called soul sleep. There are some religious groups who would teach that when you die, your soul, the real person who lives inside of you, goes to sleep. But when the New Testament talks about those who are asleep, meaning death, it's referring to and focusing on the body. Because the Bible teaches, the New Testament teaches that when we die, if I were to die right now, my body would hit the stage. It would go to sleep. But Bruce would not be here any longer. I'll just give you the passages and you can look them up later. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul says that to be absent from the body for a believer is to be present with the Lord. And then the Philippians 1.23, when Paul was saying, he said, I could die and go and be with Jesus, or I could stay and minister to you. He talks about departing his body and being with Christ in Philippians 1.23. In Acts chapter 7, an interesting thing happens. You have the story of Stephen. Remember Stephen who ends up being stoned and ends up being killed. And his body goes to sleep. But what does he say to the Lord Jesus there? He says, Lord Jesus, receive my 
spirit. The real me, I am dying in terms of my body, but the real me, Jesus, is going to be received by you. Not go into some soul sleep, but rather be present with you. We see the same idea in, in Luke 23, 43, when you had one of those terrorists who were crucified with Jesus, and Jesus said to him, as he died and his body went to sleep, today you will be with me in paradise. So the Bible does not teach, even though it uses the term asleep for believers, it's not teaching soul sleep, it's talking about bodies. It's not soul sleep at all. And, and sleeping is an apt picture of death for a believer in Jesus Christ. I mean, when you have a when you have someone sleeping, you can't communicate with them, right? A number of you wives have husbands who occasionally just drift off to sleep, and often in front of the television set, right? And when they're sleeping, you can't really communicate with them. And the same thing is true with someone who is a believer who has died. But sleep is a temporary thing because you know when you go to sleep, you're also going to wake up. And that's the idea being communicated by describing death as sleep for believers. It's kind of interesting that the word cemetery comes from a Greek word that literally means sleeping place. And so what you have is when a believer dies, their physical body goes to sleep. It's a temporary state of their physical body until they awake in the resurrection. Just need to clarify that because some people look at a sleep and then they develop all this theology from it. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15.20, it says that Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Remember, first fruits was just the beginning of the harvest. Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep, those believers who are, have died. And there's going to be a waking up that comes. And I've always liked Romans 14, verses 8 and 9. It says, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. He is the Lord of both the living and the dead. And so when we talk about sleeping, we're talking about physical bodies having died. And really, again, the background question that was being raised to Paul is what happens to our believing loved ones who have died? What's the future? How does all of this work out? So he says to them in verse 13, I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Now it's important to notice something here because there are some in the Christian community who have said that if you are spiritual and you lose a believing loved one, you, you shouldn't really grieve. There should be really no sorrow. There really should be no grief. There really should be no tears. You shouldn't really miss them. There really shouldn't be a problem with that. It's not a spiritual thing to grieve. That's what some people actually say. But that's not what he's addressing here at all. I remember when my dad died in 1993, my mom saying, I wasn't ready to let Eddie go yet. 
she, she really was communicating, you know, that I had a desire to still be around him. She understood where he stood with the Lord and where he was going, but she still wasn't ready to let go of him yet. Is he saying that we shouldn't grieve? No, he's not saying that. I mean, even Jesus wept, right? At the scene where a friend died. He doesn't say that we shouldn't grieve. Notice what he says there. He says, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. You shouldn't grieve as those who would die without a relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, for those people, when you, when you say goodbye to someone who does not know Jesus Christ, that is the ultimate finality. That is tragic. That is hopeless. You have to say goodbye to them forever. But that's not true when someone knows the Lord who dies. By the way, just if we could pull back for a moment, we need to understand, we need to put ourselves into the New Testament culture that there were some sayings in their culture that influenced the way that they thought. And that's true for us. But in their culture, they had a very, very dire view of death. One of their poets, Theocritus, basically said, the dead are without hope. One of the most prominent people that they would read in their day said, the dead are without hope. There was an inscription found on a tomb in Thessalonica that said this, after death, no reviving. After the grave, no meeting again. It's over, is what that inscription was saying. And reportedly, the god Apollo said this, once a man dies and the earth drinks up his blood, there is no resurrection. See, that's what the culture was selling and exporting. In fact, there was another inscription found on a tomb that said this, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. And so there was a lot of despair in that culture connected with the issue of death. But the opposite, you see, this is what Paul's saying, the opposite is true for a follower of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says in verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And you notice verse 14, at least in the New American Center, it says, for if we believe that Jesus died. This is structured in a way in the original that basically says, and we do believe that, or we could translate it, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep in Jesus. You might just turn your finger a little bit to the right to 2 Timothy. I want you to know 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10. 2 Timothy 1.10. Just it's just a cool statement. I mean, I get excited when I, I, I read statements like this. He talks about in 2 Timothy 1.10 that our Savior, Christ Jesus, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What an incredible statement that is. He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the first thrust that Paul communicates to those believers and to us is the thrust of be informed and be hopeful. But the second thing we wanted to look at are the details of the rapture that are given to us. 
this great coming event. And notice back in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15, he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. This wasn't some whimsy of Paul's. It wasn't some false security that he was selling. This is revelation from God. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And that's, by the way, a very absolute statement in the original text. You can absolutely guarantee that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 4, verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Now, I tell you, that's really strongly worded in verse 16. The Lord himself is going to come. There's not going to be substitutes. There's not going to be proxies who are representing him. It's not like he's at a barbecue and he says, I'm going to send one of the angels to get everybody, but I'm going to stay here because, you know, the meat's almost done. It's not that kind of a scenario at all. The Lord himself is coming for his bride. Just try to picture the excitement of a groom coming for his bride. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. It's a word that just means a command. and It's like um, the same term was used of a shipmaster who would give commands to his rowers. He's going to descend himself with a shout, with a command. By the way, it's an interesting study to track your way through uh, the Gospels and notice what happened when Jesus shouted. There's only a few times that Jesus shouted. And you know what's really interesting about it is it seems that every time Jesus shouted, the result was that people were resurrected. You might remember in John 11, it says that Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come forth! And it's been said, you know, if he hadn't said Lazarus, if he just said come forth, whoo, you know, what would have happened? We don't know. But he, he shouted something, and there was resurrection that happened. In John chapter 19, when it talks about the crucifixion, it says that with a loud voice, he cried out, to Telestai, it is finished. He shouted that out. And we learn from Matthew chapter 27 and verse 50 that it says there that the graves were opened and some of the believers were resurrected right at that very moment. And so you have the Lord himself descending from heaven with a shout. What does he say? You know, what is the command? I don't really know. I'd like to think that the command we're going to hear is very much like the command that was given from heaven in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 when the apostle John was going to be brought up to heaven and to be given revelations of future events that would happen. 
And, and the little shout that comes there in Revelation 4.1 is this, this shout. Come up here. And I like to think in my mind that's the kind of a shout that he's going to give. Come up here will be the shout. And so there's going to be this shout. And there's also going to be, it says there, um, the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. And one of the one of the functions of trumpet blasts, one of the blasts indicated it's time to strike camp and change your locale. And it's with some kind of a trumpet blast like that. And notice what's going to happen. I mean, you want to talk about a great event. And it says the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who were in relationship with the Lord Jesus, who had died, are going to rise up. See, once you are in Christ, you are forever in Christ. You are eternally cemented to Him. And so when He descends from heaven with this shout and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. In other words, the message is nobody that was in relationship with me is going to be left behind. Nobody's going to be left behind. And so, loved ones that we have known, who knew Christ personally, who have died, guess what? They're on the first cars of the resurrection train. They get on board first. And that's kind of exciting. And then notice it says in verse 17, it says, then, then, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. Now that's an amazing statement. It actually saying is that there are going to be a group of believers in Jesus Christ who won't be dying, who won't die. Um, keep your finger here and turn with me in the Old Testament to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. And I want you to look at chapter number 5 because there is a precedence for this happening. You say, well, I haven't known that happened to anybody. Well, it has happened because in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 21, we learn about the first person this happened to without seeing death was a guy by the name of Enoch. And you have to track your way through this whole section because you'll, you'll get the whole idea because it talks about such and such was born, they lived so many years and they died. Such and such was born, they lived so many years and they died. Over and over and over again. Then you come down here to verse 21. It says, And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. And then verse 22, Enoch walked with God. And notice verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. God just said, I want you up here with me. Enoch never saw death. God just took him. And then I want you to turn over to 2 Kings. If you go a little bit to the right, to the book of 2 Kings, you have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. 2 Kings 2, 2 Kings chapter 2, 
get all my chapters correct here, 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 11, and we have another individual who actually never saw physical death. His name was Elijah, and so in 2 Kings 2, verse 11, it says, As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. This is Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Man, you want to talk about a, a thrill ride uh, I, that must have been an incredible experience. But God just said to Enoch, you're not going to see death. I want you coming up here. He said to Elijah, you're not going to see death. I want you to come up here. And what this is really saying back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is that there is going to be, men and women, a whole generation of believers in Jesus Christ who will never see death, to whom God says, just come up here. Come up here. You notice it says in verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. Now again, we said that we get the word rapture from this verbal phrase, from the word rapturo in Latin. The word in Greek is the word harpazo. We will be, in essence, caught up, snatched up with them. Interesting word, harpazo. It was used outside of the New Testament of snatching something in a robbery, almost like, you know, snatching a purse and running. And that's the picture that is being drawn. We, who are alive and remain, are going to be snatched up. Same word is used in, in Acts chapter 8 of Philip, you might remember how he was snatched away from the Ethiopian eunuch, the Ethiopian government official. Same word, harpazo. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, when Paul tells a story of God taking him up into heaven, this is the word, harpazo. He was snatched up into heaven. And so probably the, the rapture is not even the best term because we, in English, we think of rapture has something to do with joy that we feel or whatever. Um, perhaps maybe the best way to title this event is to call it the great snatch. <laughs> just the great snatch. There's just going to be this great snatch where we are called up into the clouds where the Lord is. Now this happens pretty quickly. I want you to keep your finger here and go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in chapter 15, which by the way is the resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians, more information on resurrection in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians than anywhere else in the Bible. And in chapter 15, verses 51 to 57, a lot of information is given to us about this event. Just want you to notice verse 51. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. What's that mean? We will not all going to die. But we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable. That's that first phase 
and we will be changed. We're going to be transformed. When this snatch happens, we are going to be transformed into eternal bodies in the blink of an eye. I mean, it's just going to be woof like that. And we will have a divinely designed body, a divine designer body. Anyone ever really wish they could get a better body? Well, it's coming. Uh, those of us who are a little older are wishing it would come quicker, right? But we're going to get a divine designer body that will fit us out for eternity. And we will be, if we are those who are remaining, who are alive when the Lord returns, we are snatched. We're snatched from death and the grave. We're snatched from the darkness of this world. We are snatched from the coming wrath of the Lamb. And so he's saying there's a whole generation of followers of Jesus Christ who are going to meet the uptaker rather than the undertaker. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, I mean, come on, right? That's incredible stuff. That's, a, that's, a, that's an amazing thing to think about. When we talked uh, last week, just trying to answer the question, what possibly could happen to the United States on the prophetic scene? And we we speculated, we, we surmised some things that could happen, and we, we just threw out four possible outcomes, and it was so funny how many people came to me last week and they said, well, I'd opt for option number four if I had to pick, which of course was the rapture and the great snatch. Most of you said, that's the one I'd like to be involved with, and I would agree with you. Notice verse 17, back in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, will be snatched up together with them in the clouds. Together with them. What's he talking about? He's talking about being united again with the loved ones who knew the Lord that we had to say goodbye to. And he says... We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This reunion takes place somewhere up in the atmosphere. Remember what Jesus told the disciples in John 14? He said to them, I, I will come again to you and I will take you so that where I am you can be. And so we have not only the dead in Christ rising first, but that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Now, so the we, just understand the pronouns here, the we would be the deceased believing people and the living believing people. And thus we shall always perpetually, eternally be with the Lord. In other words, He's coming for us. Be we alive when He comes or having fallen asleep. 
Now, if that doesn't get your blood pumping, I'm telling you, there's something wrong. There's just something wrong if that doesn't get you excited. The first thrust that he has for us is to be informed and to be helpful, and rather be hopeful. The second thrust is details on the rapture. The third thing he wants us to get a grip on, and that is the bottom line, which is verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. See, we're not, see, we're not supposed to go out and say, let's start setting dates, let's figure out exactly when such and such is going to happen. He doesn't say what you do is then you drop out of society because there's some sort of a, an end coming and there's future events, so you just sort of drop out and you don't really worry about anything. He doesn't say that. He basically says, here's what you do with this material. You encourage one another with this. You encourage one another. So I want to draw two life lessons. The first life lesson is this, men and women. We have the best hope. We often lose sight of that. You see, the world hopes for the best. The believer in Jesus Christ has the best hope. And it's important for us to remember that as we see violence flashing across our screens. We have the best hope. It's important that we remember that as we saw this last week. Rantings from men like Ahmadinejad about what he wants to do to our country and to Israel. And we need to remember we have the best hope. And we need to remember that as we look at photos of loved ones who are now simply a memory to us of our relationship with them. We have the best hope. And I love the way the author of the Hebrews put it in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19. He says, hope, this is really a cool picture, is an anchor for our soul. It is sure and it is steadfast. So men and women, we need to remember that we have the best hope. We need to remember that when we are having to traverse through the circumstances of life, and life is hard, and we feel defeated, we need to remember we have the best hope. We need to remember that when we struggle with temptation and the enemy is attacking us and we feel inadequate, we need to remember that we have the best hope. We need to remember that when we have to march on in ministry and we've been wearied by people, people can get on your nerves and we feel discouraged, we need to remember that we have the best hope. And when we find ourselves being separated from loved ones by death, and our heart yearns for a reunion, we need to remember we have the best hope. Years ago, Bill and Gloria Gaither wrote a song, and part of the lyrics of that song went this way, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, life is worth the living just because he lives. We have the best hope. And as much as we have hope as we live for Jesus today, we have more to look forward to in the future. By the way, if you're here and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I just want you to understand very clearly that this hope can be your hope too. 
if you realize that you can't earn your way into good graces with God, but Jesus Christ made a way by dying for you. And if you will turn to him and trust in him and rest in him and confess your own inadequacy to him and the great adequacy of the person of Christ, this hope can be your hope. So, that's the first life lesson. We have the best hope. Here's the second one. He may come today. Years ago, it was much more popular then. You saw the signs. They were sometimes a bumper sticker in a car. Two words, perhaps today. Sort of an inside line among believers. Perhaps today will be the day. Sam Gordon tells a story of British explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton. He was exploring the South Pole region. He's a British guy. And uh, at one point in time, he had to leave a few men on Elephant Island promising that he would return. And later he tried to go back several times, but huge icebergs blocked the way. And then suddenly, as if by some sort of a miracle, an avenue opened in the ice and Shackleton was able to get through and he was surprised when he did to find that his men were ready and waiting and they quickly scrambled on board the ship. And no sooner had the ship cleared the island than the ice crashed together again behind them with an ear-splitting thud. And contemplating their narrow window of escape, the ruddy explorer said to his men, it was fortunate you were all packed and ready to go. And they said to him this, whenever the sea was clear of ice, we rolled up our sleeping bags and reminded each other, he may come today. Perhaps, yeah, perhaps today, perhaps today. Let's pray together. Father, again, we, we just thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you for this great event that lies ahead. And, and just for the tremendous encouragement it is to know that once we're connected with Christ, it's for all time. And that every one of us who knows you personally is going to ride on the resurrection train. Some of us are going to get in the first cars. Some of us will get in the second cars. But may we live our life in light of the fact that the truth still stands. You could come today. And are we really prepared in case it were today? Thank you for what you teach us through your word. May it make a difference in how we live starting tomorrow our life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.